0: Before we move on to the topic of clinging, <clears throat> any more questions about craving? <laughs> Traveling, Mike.
1: Ajahn, I'm kind of wondering uh, what's the difference between sensuality craving and sensual becoming because there is the examples you gave
0: they're similar the the craving for sensual as becoming is basically taking on the identity of someone in a world where you can enjoy sensual pleasures so the sensuality craving is the nucleus for that becoming so first is the image of the pizza and then there's the image of me as the person who can eat the pizza and can get the pizza so the first one, is sort of this image of, I want to go over that pizza. That's the craving for sensuality. And then there's, I want to be the person who can get pizza anytime he wants and whatever. That's the becoming. Questions over here?
1: Hi John, thank you for the, for the talk. The Dharma fire hose that I'm drinking from here. Um, you mentioned something in the, at the end of the last session which really piqued my interest, and you said that Buddha
0: um, spoke about not harming others, but that was separate from not hurting people's feelings. Right. And given the
1: issue of speech, particularly say on college campuses now, I'm just interested in
2: if you have a sense of what the Buddha might say about folks who would say that some speech is hurting my feelings, mm-hmm. and therefore, um, it's, harm, it's harmful to me. I wonder if you have a, a, a something to say about that. If that's okay to ask.
0: Sure. Um, I must admit that the reason I was smiling just now was I was thinking about a phrase I learned in Thailand. This one woman who was a professor at a, at a university in Thailand. She says, "What's wrong with it? Th- wrong with this current generation of students? Is that they, even, they, even if they stepped on chicken shit, it wouldn't wouldn't crush it?" <laughs> 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 in other words, you've got to learn how there's going to be harm. You know, unpleasant speech in the world. And it's not necessarily harming you. And the Buddha gives an example. He was that you probably know that Sutta Majima fifty eight, where the prince has been put up by the Jains to ask the Buddha, would the Buddha ever say anything unpleasant? And they think they just got him in a double bind. If he says, yes, he would say unpleasant things, they would say, well, what's the difference between you and the ordinary people out in the market? And if he says he wouldn't say unpleasant things, they have him on record for call, you know, saying unpleasant things about Devadatta. And so the prince goes and he asks the question of the Buddha, and the Buddha says, that, that's a question that does not deserve a categorical answer, and the prince realized, okay, the Buddha was able to get out of the double vine. And he gives the example of having a child <coughs> who's got something sharp in his mouth. And what do you do? You hold the child very carefully and you get your finger in the person, child's mouth and get that sharp object out, even if it means drawing blood. Because, why? Because if the child swallowed it, it would be even worse. So there are times you have to say unpleasant things to people to warn them that they are warned them or else warn the, other, warn the other people around them that this person is on the wrong course. And so, he says that he would, basically before he would say anything, he'd ask himself first, is it true? And if it was true, then the second question is, is it beneficial? And the third question is, is this the right time to say something pleasant or something unpleasant? So, truth, beneficial, time and place. And they say, if something would pass all three tests, then he would say it. So the fact that there is unpleasant speech in the world, he has lots of instructions on how, given the fact that we live in a world where human speech can either be pleasant or unpleasant, well-meant or not well-meant, helpful or not helpful. We have to learn how to train our minds not to be affected when unpleasant speech comes. So this is part of a training that you have to learn. Okay, no matter what unpleasant things people can say to you, you don't have to let yourself be harmed. I think part of the problem is they're trying to take the sort of the laws of a a psychotherapist's office and impose them on the rest of society as a whole. And it doesn't work that way. Because otherwise you're going to be, you know, know, nobody will be able to say anything because somebody's going to be offended. So we have to learn how to learn that people's speech can be what they, people have the right to say what they want to say, but we don't have to let ourselves get harmed by it. And the image of the Buddha gives is, think of your mind, well, think of your goodwill as being as large as the earth. And the person who's saying unpleasant, something unpleasant is like someone who's trying to spit on the earth and, and dig in the earth and say, be without earth, be without earth. And you say, nope, the earth is just too big. So instead of you having this image of yourself as this poor, weak person who's victimized by every unpleasant thing that's being said to you, your mind is solid and it's large and invulnerable, invincible. And if you can learn that, then we can live with one another. So I think that's probably what you'd have to say. Yeah. Thank you.
2: Mm-hmm. Hi. Um, so I feel like I'm accustomed to hearing uh, the second noble truth uh, talked about in terms of the three, bo- the three poisons, greed, mm-hmm. hate, and delusion. Mm-hmm. Can you help me distinguish uh, the three poisons from these three forms of... Of craving, are you talking okay. about the same thing with d- different terms? Well, or? With the
0: craving—it's three times of craving are would either be greed or aversion, and then because the craving is based on ignorance, that's where the delusion would be. So you've got the delusion underneath the two,
2: mm-hmm.
0: and then the cravings either tend to go towards something or trying to run away from something. Mm-hmm. Mike for Monk. <laughs> uh,
2: Korker, um,
3: I've heard you just uh, this morning speaking about the path in the mountain and how the path doesn't necessarily correspond to the nature of the destination. Um, and I've heard in a previous talk sort of speaking about the quality of the enlightened mind, like the luminous quality, but that not implying a certain, that just implying sort of the knowing or or. Mm -hmm. not what people usually take it as Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm curious about that because uh, you know in terms of an Arahant not ever breaking the five precepts or something like that um, and the path also having that quality of harmlessness around say the five precepts there seems to be a correspondence and some quality to the enlightened mind that would
2: keep it from those things. um, Okay the color of the dirt on
0: the road to the Grand Canyon is the same color as the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Like <laughs> Thank you. let's move on to clinging <coughs> okay the clinging is defined in passages of 10, 11, and 12 either as desire passion or as delight in other words you, you don't just want something but you found something that you really have or feel passionate about or you really are delighting in um, the word for craving, dana, means to thirst for something, whereas the word upadana, which is the Pali word for clinging, is to feed on something. So the connection is, okay, with, with craving, you are thirsting for something out there, and with the clinging, you found something to feed on, and you grab onto that, and you hold onto it to get some sustenance out of it. Um. So it's both the act of taking sustenance and also the sustenance that's provided by whatever the object is. They use this primarily in two contexts. It's one is the sustenance for a tree. The tree takes sustenance out of the earth. And the other is a fire taking sustenance out of its fuel. It clings to the fuel at the same time that it's feeding on the fuel. And I think this image of feeding is the best way to sort of think about clinging. Um, Sometimes the question comes up, you know, if I can't cling, how can I have attachments to my family? And the difference is you can, you know, feel affection for your family, you feel committed to the family, you're responsible for your family. But the question is, does your happiness depend on feeding on your family? And for a lot of people it is, you know. Yeah, I really get my sustenance in life by feeding off of my children or feeding off of the, the situation in the family. And that's the unnecessary part of the relationship and that's the part that turns it into suffering so we want to learn how to you know, if you can be in a relationship I mean, the Buddha actually recommends that when a monk gets ordained that he regards his teacher as his father and the teacher is supposed to regard the monk as his son and treat one another with the same kind of affection but this means but also means in the context that you don't have to make your happiness depend on this person being the way you want it, him or her to be so you can feed on them That's the distinction that's being made here. Now, what what do we cling to? We cling to these activities that are called the aggregates. In fact, the five clinging aggregates, this is the Buddha's definition of suffering. When he talks about suffering, first he gives you a list of the different kinds of suffering. There's the suffering of birth, aging, illness, death, being together with what you don't like, being separated from what you do like, not getting what you want, all of which are things we're familiar with, and then he says, okay, in short, it's the five clinging aggregates. And this is where it, it, it goes from being familiar to being unfamiliar. So I have to develop, I have to talk both about clinging and the aggregates. Um, just as a f- note to keep in mind beforehand, because this is the first noble truth, you want to comprehend clinging, you want to also comprehend the aggregates. And comprehending means that you understand them to the point where you develop dispassion for them. Now remember, we talked about passion is what drives the fabrication Fashion, passion is also what drives our felt need to feed off of these things so you have to learn how to understand what are these things that I'm feeding on one of the and is, is it really providing the nourishment that I thought it would and ultimately you want to see that it's not it's like that famous Far Side cartoon where a group of cows are out in the pasture and one of them is jerking her head up and says wait a minute, this is grass we've been eating grass <laughs> <laughs> But well, the Buddha actually has a very similar image. He says it's like a blind person who's been given a d- dirty old rag, and he's told this is a beautiful white piece of cloth. Keep take good care of it. And so he takes very good care of what he thinks of. What is a beautiful white piece of cloth? And then his friends and relatives take him to a doctor who gives him his eyesight back. And then he looks at a cloth. And he realizes he's been cherishing a dirty rag. So in other words, we've been feeding off these things without really noticing what we're feeding off of, and realizing that. Without realizing that we're causing ourselves more stress than we need to. Okay, what are aggregates and what's clinging? Let's go into a little bit more detail. Okay, there are five aggregates form, which is the form of your body, can also mean any physical form bottle of water, the watch, other people. These are all forms. Okay, then the second one is feeling. These are feeling tones. These are not emotions. A feeling tone of either pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain. The third one is perception. These are the labels that we apply to things. The names we give to things or the image we have in mind when we're thinking about something. That's a perception. Fabrication is the mind's ability to put things together, to think about things and to put perceptions together so you can begin to plan and evaluate the results of what you've done, the way you sort of think and judge about things. The way you reason to yourself is also a fabrication. We'll be getting more into this later on. And then finally, consciousness is your, the bare imprint of a sensation on your senses, the, re- the reception of those imprints. So you've got form, feeling, perception, fabrication, and consciousness. So those are the five aggregates. So what, and the question is, why does the Buddha divide the objects of clinging into these five types? And the best answer I can come up with, he doesn't, doesn't say why in the canon, but the best answer I can come up with is that all of these five things are involved in the process of, of feeding, both physically and emotionally. In terms of physical feeding, for example... You have this body, which you have to sustain, and there are things outside that, you're going, that you could possibly eat. That's all form. Then you have feelings. You've got the feeling of the pain, of the hunger, when the body feels a need for something, and then you've got the sense of pleasure that comes when that need has been met. Perception is twofold. One is perceiving. What kind of hunger do I have? Am I hungry for something salty? Am I hungry for something sweet? Am I hungry for vegetables? Am I hungry for a relationship? You're asking, what, what lack do I feel? Can you identify the nature of the lack? And then they ask the other question, of course, what is out there that I can feed on? And this is how we relate to the world to begin with. Our first perception is, can I eat it or can I not eat it? You know, mm-hmm. little kids crawl across the floor, they find something, where is the first place they put it? In the mouth. Is this edible? Then the next question is, okay, suppose you know I want I need a certain kind of food, how do I find it? That's fabrication, how you plan for it. Once you found it, can you eat it as it is, or do you have to prepare it? You, know, you get a raw potato, you can't eat the raw potato, you've got to cook it, you've got to do something with it. All of that is fabrication. And then finally consciousness is kind of the bare awareness of these things. All you know, the all these processes as they're happening. So these are the things, given the fact that we define ourselves as beings in a particular state, and the nature of a being is that they have to feed. This is, the, this is your most you know, basic activity as a being. I've got to sustain my being by feeding it. And so it's, it's through these five activities that we sustain ourselves, which is why they are so basic and fundamental as terms of activities of the mind as we're going through the world. Now we hear so much about how the aggregates are painful, but the Buddha says they're not exclusively painful. He said if they were exclusively painful, we wouldn't cling to them. We'd have no passion for them, we'd have no delight in them, we'd have no desire for them. It's the fact that they do have offer some pleasure that we actually cling. Now this is important, because sometimes you hear, you know, we cling to things because we think they have inherent existence, or we cling to things because we think they're permanent. But we don't really care whether they have inherent existence or permanence. We think, is it going to be worth the effort to get them? And we think for a minute, what are the two big things that people cling to? Food and sex, right? Does anyone think that food and sex is permanent? No. (laughs) Do we think that they have inherent existence? No, it doesn't matter. We think it's worth the effort to get it, that, that that we go for it and that we cling to it. So what this means is we're t- we're making a value judgment, and the Buddha is saying we're making a very bad value judgment in clinging to the aggregates. And we have to learn how to do is tra- train ourselves to make better value judgments about whether these things are worth holding on to or not. You know, once a year, I go to Zion National Park, and I have to drive through Las Vegas, and we, <laughs> we don't stop. We don't stop. <laughs> 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 we made this mistake of stopping one time at a gas station to get gas, and so we have you know, three or four monks out and you're cleaning the windows on the on the van, and somebody comes up to you, "Are you guys a rap group?" <laughs> I figured this is the last place on earth I ever want to teach the Dharma. I'm sorry. And one of our sports in going through Las Vegas is looking at the the billboards, and one of the billboards was you know saying we casino, promising, we give a 93% payback rate. (laughs) (laughs) And you know what they're saying? They're saying, you give us a dollar, we'll give you 93 cents back. (laughs) 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 And every Friday night, people go by droves from Los Angeles, and every Sunday afternoon, they're coming back by droves, because they want to trade a dollar for 93 cents. (laughs) (laughs) And this is our problem as human beings. We're bad judges of what actually is worth doing. Because we, you know, we learned what's worth doing when we were little kids. And a lot of those ideas from our childhood when we didn't have good judgment are still hanging around, lurking around in the mind. So the Buddha's teaching us, trying to say we have to learn how to have better value judgments about these things. This is what the three perceptions are all about. You just look at something, is it lasting? No, it's not lasting. Is it stressful? or easeful, it's stressful. Is it worth holding on to as yourself? The teaching on not-self is not a metaphysical doctrine. He's not saying there is no self. The question is, is it worth developing an identity around this? And the answer is no, okay, then let, let go of that. It's a value judgment. Is it worth it? No. So that's what we're working on, trying to prove our value judgments. Now, given what I was saying earlier about how we have the raw materials from which we fashion things, in other words, it's, it's like you know we have the food that from which we are going to fashion something that we want to eat. We tend to, be, we tend to cling first to the raw materials as they're coming. We, tend to the, we cling to the present moment process of fashioning something out of them. We cling to the anticipation of what we're going to get. And we cling to the results when they're attained. So there's four stages in the process that we're clinging. Just the raw material coming in. Say you have a garden where you've got your vegetables growing. You cling to the garden. You cling to your skill as a cook in fixing food out of the garden. You cling to your anticipation about what you're going to get when you finish fixing it. And then you cling to the food as you're eating it. So there's all these things that we tend to cling to. An image I like to give is... um, you're raising chickens, you've got the chickens because you want to get the eggs out of the chickens. Even if you're vegetarian, you've got the chickens for the eggs, okay? Okay, you cling to the chickens, they provide the raw material. You cling to the eggs as they're coming out. And you cling to your ability to do something with the eggs in anticipation of what good food you're gonna get out of the eggs. Now the problem is our judgment is pretty bad. We, whatever comes out of the chicken we su- assume is an egg. <laughs> and we eat it. <laughs> and then we wonder why our stomachs are not, you know, we we get sick. And then on top of that the Buddha says not only do we feed off the aggregates, but the aggregates chew on us. Form, feeling, perceptions, fabrications, consciousness these chew on us. In other words, these are chickens from hell. <laughs> they wait until you're asleep at night and then they come and peck at your ears and eyes and nose. And, <laughs> and we don't see the connection. We say, where are these chickens coming from? We're feeding them. Okay. So these are the things we've got to watch out for. The raw materials that are coming in from past karma, our skill as a cook, basically, our anticipation of what all the good things we're going to get from our skills and then we cling also to the product when it's, when it's attained. You know, as i said earlier the aggregates are not exclusively painful they are also not what we are there's a belief in fact it's actually developed quite early in the in the commentaries that okay we don't have a self but the co- aggregates are what we are as human beings that's not the case the buddha keeps saying one self does not have to be permanent whatever is you see this several times in the canon that he equates, the Buddha says, your sense of self is not necessarily the belief that you have a permanent self, it's whatever you identify yourself as. could be permanent, not permanent, whatever, it's still you, your sense of you, that is yourself. And the Buddha says very specifically, you've got to learn how to see that none of these aggregates are yourself. Then the question is, what are you? The Buddha says, don't ask. Because as soon as you try to define yourself, you limit yourself. You know, very standard case of this, and I've been hearing it again and again, is, you know, if I'm a psychophysical being, how could I possibly be reborn? How could I possibly know anything that is deathless and unconditioned? This is, I mean, this is the basic premise of secular Buddhism. In fact, I was talking with a Buddhist scholar a while back who made that particular comment, and I... <coughs> I pointed out well, on the one hand, the Buddha never defines what a human being is, and said his process was, his approach was, let's see what I can know, what I can do, and then based on what he was able to know and do, then he came back and looked at what what, what capabilities does a human being have, but he never comes back to define what a human being is. And This particular scholar said he could understand how the Buddha. Um, you know, gained a sense of equanimity on the night of his awakening, but the idea of putting an end to rebirth, that just didn't make any sense to him. And I said, you're like a person who can read only three letters at a time, and you see the word antelope, and you see, him. okay, the Buddha teaches ants. <laughs> that's because that's, that's what you see. And then as for antelopes, it just doesn't make, make any sense to you. And especially if someone comes to you and say, antelope, you no, know, it's not ant, it's antelope. And you say, well, ants don't elope. That doesn't make any sense to me. <laughs> I'm going to stick with ants. Okay. The Buddha says, if you define yourself, you limit yourself. So he says, Just stay away from this process of defining yourself. This is why there's nothing in the Noble truths about what you are. There's simply, define your experience in terms of what's, what you're doing that's causing stress, what you can do that can lead to the end of stress. Those are the only categories you need to think about. Or think in. Okay, this clinging is something we have to learn how to overcome, not only because it causes stress and suffering right now, but clinging is what leads to rebirth and even more suffering after we die. As long as the mind is clinging, as long as consciousness and craving are there, they will feed each other. In other words, your consciousness does not need a body in order to survive, it survives on clinging and craving. And the clinging and craving, of course, depend on the consciousness. It kind of goes back and forth. But the process could be indefinite, could go on continually unless you put a stop to it. And there are four types of clinging. Okay, there's clinging to sensuality, which we've already defined. You cling to your ability to fantasize about sensual pleasures, there's clinging to views. Clinging to habits and practices, and clinging to doctrines of the self. And sensuality, views, habits and practices. Sometimes that's translated as rites and rituals, or precepts and practices, which makes it sound like the Buddha is saying, if you don't have any precepts, you're okay. (laughs) Which is not what he's saying. The word sila can mean habit, virtue, precept. In this case, I think it means habits. I'll give you an example. If you've heard the story of Conrad Lawrence and his goose, you can tune out for the next five minutes. I'll I'll repeat it to you if you haven't heard it. Conrad Lawrence was a famous biologist in Austria. And one summer he was raising a goose. The goose gave birth to a little gosling. And then she died. And so immediately the gosling fixated on Conrad Lawrence. Wherever Conrad Lawrence went in the garden, the little gosling would follow him around. And as the summer went by, of course, the gosling turned into a goose. It was still following around the garden. And as winter, as fall came, Conrad Lawrence realized I've got to bring the goose into the house so it doesn't freeze during the winter. So one evening when it tam- came time to feed the goose, instead of feeding the goose, he just walked into the house and left the door open. So the goose followed him in. Now this was the first time the goose had ever been in an enclosed space and it freaked out and saw a window down at the end of the hall, immediately went running to the window, hoping to get out, but then realized he couldn't get out. In the meantime, Conrad Lawrence walked up the stairway, went up to the right, which went up to his apartment in the next floor, called the goose. The goose turned around, went back, followed him up the stairs. And that's where it got to eat. So from that point on, every time the goose went into the house, it would go first to the window, then back and up the stairs. <laughs> and then as time wore on, the trip to the window got shorter and shorter, until finally the goose would go to that side of the stairway, shake its foot at the window, go up the stairs. (laughs) 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 Then one night Conrad Lawrence came home late from work and the goose was really hungry. And so as soon as he opened the door into the house, the goose went running into the house and up the stairs. And then it stopped halfway up the stairs, shook all over, and then very methodically walked down the stairs, over the window, back back up. That's clinging to habits and practices. <laughs> Listening to your inner goose. <laughs> okay. So we have sensuality, views, habits and practices, and doctrines of the self. Now of these four, three of them will actually have a role in the path. Just giving you a little forewarning. There will be views, there will be habits and practices, and there will be doctrines of the self that you will cling to provisionally as part of the path. Sensuality does not have a role in the path. But let's go look at the first at the unskillful versions of these things. Um, for basically the views here are the wrong views that would lead you to act in unskillful ways. The Buddha wants you to abandon those. These include views of determinism, in other words, whatever you experience has already been determined either by something you did in the past or something a creator God did to create the world, or just simply impersonal fate. That's a wrong view because it means that you're not going to pay attention to your actions. You're not going to take responsibility for them. That's one wrong view. Another wrong view is randomness. In other words, there is no cause and effect in the world. Things just happen randomly, spontaneously. Which would lead you to believe, well, whenever pleasure comes, I'm going to grab it right then because I don't know when it's coming back. That leads also to unskillful actions. It's interesting that the Buddha also includes the belief that I have a self and I have no self, these are wrong views. Important point to remember. Okay? And all the variations that come at that, that's, it's, it, it sounds kind of complex, I'm, excuse me, but it sounds very Indian. You know, it's through self that I know self, or it's through not self that I know self, or it's through se- not, you know, <laughs> not self that I know not self. But it's also, you know, it's, it's just the story of Western philosophy. Kant, I know self through not self, you know. Leibniz, I know self through self. And it's, it's you know the questions of what am I, do I exist, do I not exist? This animates Western philosophy, Indian philosophy, and the Buddha is basically saying, don't go there. It's a, it's a writhing of views. Then there are any of ten positions that the Buddha said he, he would not even answer the question: Is the world eternal? Is the world not eternal? Is the world finite? Is it infinite? Is the body the same thing as your soul? Is your soul something separate from the body? Um, After an arhant dies, does the arhant exist, not exist, both, neither? Just stay away from those, because it just gets you entangled in a writhing of views. Agnosticism is also a wrong view. In other words, saying, and it's specifically agnosticism about what's skillful and what's not skillful. The Buddha calls this eel wriggling. Um, that you refuse to take one answer or another. Now, there are some issues, of course, that the Buddha would not address, as I just said. But in his case, he would also explain why you don't address them. Whereas he says basically agnosticism that comes either out of fear, because you know, I don't really know, and I don't want to talk, and I don't want to take a position, or fear that there might be somebody who's smarter at arguing than you are, so I'm not going to take a position, or the idea of well, if I have no views at all, I will be okay, so I'll just not have views. That doesn't count. As, as the proper approach. Um, so all of these things would come under. you hold on to these things either to argue the point or just for your own personal belief or the belief that you know, by holding on to this I will become a better person or I'll, that will make me better than other people. Uh, my first grade teacher um, was a Catholic and my mother was head of the PTA that year. When I was in first grade. And so the first grade teacher, who was also the principal of the school, it was a little tiny school. We had 63 kids in eight grades. It was a farm school. She would come home, she would come by our house every now and then on the way back from school and talk to my mother about issues of the school. And one day after the meeting, my mother came to the dinner table and said, I just heard the strangest thing from your teacher, which she thought that if being a Catholic didn't make you better than other people, what what was it worth? And I must admit, even at at grade six, I realized this is stupid. (laughs) (laughs) But there are people who hold on to things, their views, because, okay, they feel it makes them a better person. Or if you hold on to this view, if you take Jesus Christ, your personal Lord, and Savior, with no doubts, you go to heaven, you know. All of this is holding on. This is clinging to views. And we suffer because of it. Okay, that's views. Habits and practices. As I said, this is not just rituals, and it's not just precepts any habit that you hold on to with the belief either that if I do things a certain way I'm guaranteed a road to heaven or I just do things because I feel right doing it you don't really look at the results carefully the practices that the Buddha criticized in the canon included the belief following brahmanical rituals would take you to heaven that self-torture would take you to heaven you've probably heard about the dog duty ascetic you know that one? Where this guy says, okay, if I if I really take on the mind of a dog and the behavior of a dog and everything, I will get to go to heaven. And he comes and he curls up, you know, on the ground right next to the Buddha, <laughs> like a dog. And he has a friend who's a cow duty ascetic, who's been also practicing to be, you know, to have the mind of a cow and the <laughs> and the habits of a cow. And so the cow the cow duty ascetic asks the Buddha about the dog duty ascetic. He says, Will this actually take him to heaven? He said, Buddha said, Don't ask. You don't want to know. <laughs> But the cow duty keeps, you know, keeps asking him again and again. So finally he says, look, if you develop the mind of a dog and the habit of a dog and the behavior of a dog, when you die, you will be born in the company of dogs. Okay? <laughs> and how about the cow duty? Okay, the same thing. You develop the mind of a cow, the attitude of a cow, the behavior of a cow. You are likely to be born in the company of cows. So these are wrong habits and practices. The two other examples, there, were, there was a professional soldier who had been told by his, his teachers, "Okay, if you die in battle, it will take you to heaven. You have to go to the heaven of heroes. And He says, what does the Buddha have to say about this? And the Buddha says, don't ask. The Buddha had this habit of, okay, if, he, if he was about to deliver something unpleasant to someone like that, he needed to know that they really wanted to know, which in India meant that you had to ask it three times. That was a sign you were sincere, you wanted, really want to know something. Then he would answer. In this case he said, No, you die while in, you're in battle and you're thinking, May these beings maybe the enemy be destroyed, may they die, may they you know, may make harm come to them. When you die, you go, you're reborn in the hell of heroes rather than the heaven. The professional soldier breaks down and cries. The Buddha said, This is why I didn't want to answer. And the guy says, I'm not crying because what you said, I'm crying because my, my teachers lied to me all this time. Um, another one was a professional actor who came and asked the same question. The Buddha said, Don't ask. And finally, the the answer was, you know, if you're up on the stage, you are giving rise to passion, aversion, and delusion yourself, and you're trying to give rise to passion, delusion, and aversion in your students, in your audience, excuse me. Um, Instead of going to the heaven of laughter, you're going to go to the hell of laughter. In other words, they don't laugh with you, they laugh at you. This is one of the reasons why you don't see actors and actresses in Hollywood hanging around Theravada monks. (laughs) (laughs) So these are the habits and practices that the Buddha criticized as you don't cling to these things. Okay. I thought you were laughing. (laughs) Finally, doctrines of the self. Basically, identifying yourself, anything as I am this. Say, this is myself, this is what I am. which is not the same as having a sense of, just the simple sense of I am. We'll get to that distinction in a minute. Now, the self does not have to be permanent to count as a the self. There are lots of examples in the Dika Sometimes you see that the not-self teaching was formulated specifically in response to the Upanishadic view of the self. But that's assuming that there was only one view of the self in the Upanishads. Actually, I, I've been able to count nine in just 16 Upanishads and the the, the 15 has a particular way of dividing them up. There's the belief that there's a self that is has form and is finite, a self that has form and is infinite, the self that has no form and is finite, and the self that has no form and is infinite. All of these count as definitions of self that you could have. Similarly, the self tends to be defined around the five aggregates. Um... You either identify yourself, I am this aggregate. One thing I forgot to mention earlier is these aggregates are actually not things, they are activities. Your form is something that you keep creating your perception of form all the time. Feeling is something that you are doing something you're doing. Perception is something you're doing. Fabrication (coughs) you do. Consciousness you do. All of these things involve activities and you're clinging to these activities. And you're going to either identify yourself as Identical with the activity or as the owner of the activity However that owner might be defined That you are in that activity or that activity is in you For instance, you are in that activity um, You might have the idea that Okay, this body is my, is, belongs to me And I'm the little sort of person inside That looks out the eyes and listens out the ears um, That's you, know, you in the form so you're not identifying yourself as the form, but you are in there someplace, running around, taking care of what's coming in through the senses. Another vision you might have is, okay, I have this infinite sense of self, and this body belongs to that, which would be the case, okay, the, the body of form is in consciousness, or is in my infinite self. That too would also count as a form of self-view. So we're not just limiting ourselves to saying the idea of a separate, unconnected self is the only type of self the Buddha is talking about. It could also be an infinite self, a connected self. I am identifying I am identical with the world. I am identical with everybody else here in the room. That also is a self-view that can cause suffering. I mean, just think of all the people in the world that you don't want to be part of. Being interconnected is no solution to suffering. And as for the distinction between I am this or I am, there was a... a, uh, Sutra, where Venerable Kamika, who is a non-returner, is asked about the question, do you identify around any of the aggregates? And he says, no. And I say, well, in that case, you must be an Arahant. He says, no, I'm not an Arahant. I still have a lingering sense of I am, but I don't identify it with anything. And he compares it to the scent of basically what was used as detergent in those days. You wash a cloth with the detergent and then all the dirt is now out of the cloth, but then the smell of the detergent is still in the cloth. So there was the me who was doing this cleaning up, up. and for a non-returner there's still a sense of I am but it's not identified with any of the aggregates that's a distinction between conceit which is I am and doctrine of the self which is I am this so we're clinging to the doctrine of the self I am this so those are the five aggregates those are the four forms of clinging as I said earlier The duty, our duty here is to comprehend it to the point where we gain dispassion for these things. You know, dispassion for the aggregates themselves, dispassion for the different ways that we cling. It's, you know, it's, 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 this is one of the big paradoxes of the Buddhist teachings: The things that we hold on to tightest are the ones that are causing us the most suffering. And so we have to learn. So this is what the path is going to have to do, is to give us something alternative to hold on to while we're letting go of these things that we really like that we really feel very strong, uh, have a strong sense of identification around. So, that is unskillful clinging. Any questions? Yes? Where's the mic? Where's the mic? Yes, back that
2: way. I beat him. Um, Two questions, maybe. Uh, Well, let me mix them together. So there's a lot of teachings out there nowadays about, um, uh, some of them related to Indian saints, Ramana Maharshi, Mm -hmm. um, that represent a lot of views about the true nature of self. You know, I'm not this. I'm all of this, etc., mm-hmm. etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, from what you're saying, I, I see those all as views, mm-hmm. self views. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe first question: So, what's the remedy for that? How do I perceive those? In some some cases, experiences mm-hmm. you mentioned jhanas mm-hmm. before. So, I've had an experience, a jhanic experience. Mm-hmm no time, no space, no self, no person Mm -hmm. Um, I could look to that and say well that represents some kind of ultimate reality and then cling to that as a a view of Mm -hmm. ultimate Mm -hmm. reality or of no self Mm -hmm. how do we deal with those kinds of of experiences? you ask yourself when I was in that experience what what was I doing?
0: if it really was unconditioned you wouldn't be doing anything at all but there's, usually, especially if it's a jonic experience, there's something that the mind is doing. There's a, there's a perception you have to hold on to, there's a little bit of fabrication you have to hold on to, there's an intention you have to hold on to. You have to look for that. So the, when the mind gets into concentration, that's the Buddha's way of asking things, is not, what level of reality have I tuned into, as much as, what am I doing to maintain
2: this experience? And what if there was nothing done and the experience happened. Okay, there was no intention. The question, no is, intention the question Even
0: sometimes there's no intention, you slip into these things. But then to maintain them, there has to be an intention. What am I doing to maintain this? And then you say, I don't see anything, then you
2: just look again and again and again and again. So in terms of, uh, you know, uh, my being exposed to mm-hmm. a lot of other teachings as well, as well it seems like... Uh, you know, repeat it in a way, not this, not this, you know, Mm -hmm. resisting uh, the idea of adopting a view of self or Mm -hmm. ultimate reality or... Again, this gets back to looking at things in terms of
0: the Four noble Truths. What am I doing? Is there any stress?
2: Over here.
0: Um, So you mentioned as part of the um, view of determinism One of the, which is an unskillful view, one of the aspects uh, I think you said was um, a belief that things that you do now um, can have an effect on what happens to you later. Mm -hmm. No, it's that everything everything that you experience now is a result of a past action. That's the determinism. And so my question is how is that different from karma? Karma is a you are also con- you are also contributing to your experience right now through present karma, which is n- does not necessarily have to be determined by past karma.
2: Could I ask you to just repeat that?
0: <laughs> okay. In other words, your present experience is composed of three things: input coming in, the raw material coming in from your past karma, what your your intentions are right now, the fabrications you're doing around that to create it into a coherent experience, and then the results of that present moment fabrication and, so, that, and that present moment fabrication does not necessarily have to be influenced by your past karma so just to clear, be clear for myself so the determinism idea is basically just like if I touch this I'll have good luck no the determinism idea is that the fact that I'm touching this right now is because of some past karma I did you know, I am not responsible for it right now Okay. All right. I got gotcha. you. Thanks. Question over here.
3: Okay, uh, just have a quick question. We're waiting. Uh, right here, right in front of you. Right okay. here, a yeah. little girl. Uh, I have a practical question. Maybe I don't know much about Buddhism, but um, you say I still have trouble thinking of the, uh, the term, you know, non-self or egoless or whatever you call. Um, so if so then I know that our physical body is made of four elements and mm-hmm. when we you know leave the body then it will go back to where it was but then what leaves the body when we die and if you say that it's non-self then who bears the, the, the karma the past karma okay the
0: Buddha never says there is no self but, he never uh, says there is a self he non, said that, that question. No, non-self means is this me you point to something is this me is that me and the answer is no. Mm. But the question is, is there, re- is there a self behind all this? Is there a self asking the question? Oh, the Buddha what? says, don't, ans- don't ask that question. Because that question gets you carried so away from the go,
3: practice. To go to nowhere. Okay, but, yeah. what, what, but what leaves the body when we die? What is that the energy? Okay, or something goes from, from one life to another?
0: The Buddha has to look at the rebirth not so much as what leaves the body as, okay, what is it? The, the, causes you to have a new experience of a new becoming even when you leave the body. And it's, it's like, think of it like going from one dream to another, what goes from the first dream to the second dream? It's not a question. Because you just you have the dream in the same place, the second dream comes in the same place. So the question is not what leaves here to go there, the question is how do I, in here, right here, right now, in this body, when this the experience of this body goes away, what causes me to take on a new experience of a new body in a new place?
2: And it would yeah, be same, it would be it would
0: be your clinging, it would be clinging your craving. So that's what you look at: the activity of clinging and craving, clinging and craving. So the Buddha never answers the question "What gets reborn?" The question is "How does rebirth happen?" It happens through cl- clinging and craving. So it's only had a adjust yeah. your mind to think in a different way. Yeah.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Question back here? Thank
3: yes. You. Um, thank you. I find your okay. analogies, your metaphors, quite useful. Can you pass um, this mic back there? Mm-hmm. The, Sorry. Go ahead. The, the chicken, the mm-hmm. egg, and the chef,
2: mm-hmm.
3: or the goose mm-hmm. um, shaking its left leg at the window. Mm-hmm. When we find ourselves in those moments of clinging um, and we're aware that were clinging Mm -hmm. um, shaking my left leg Mm -hmm. what is your practice Um, do you flow to gratitude for the fact that your left leg can shake do you look at the pan full of eggs and bless the chicken Um, can you elaborate on I look at myself
0: shaking my leg and I say am I really getting anything out of this
3: yes that's That's a good first step. Yeah, yeah. But
0: and the question is, can I go up the stairs c- without shaking my leg?
3: And if you're making the eggs, you mm-hmm. say, yes, I am. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay, I'm making the eggs, and the question is, am I getting any real nourishment out of these eggs? Or, but look a little more carefully at the eggs that I'm putting in the pan. Did I get the right things out of the chicken? <laughs> <laughs>
3: Depends on what I fed the chicken. Yeah,
0: well, not only that, but I mean, chickens, no matter what you feed them, create chicken shit. Are you getting yes, the chicken I shit get out of the chicken and, and trying to cook that?
3: Right.
0: And how are you cooking it? You know, are you cooking it well or not well? I mean, <laughs> okay. Thank
3: you. <laughs> I, sorry.
0: About <laughs> <laughs> There's a question back here.
4: Uh, Ajahn, thanks for being here. Very nice talk. Uh, question, more general Question. How can we uh, uh, bridge this uh, fundamental divide between the knowledge of the modern science, cosmology, physics, geology, etc., cetera, et cetera, on one hand, and all the uh, knowledge uh, that comes from <coughs> uh, the Buddha? Uh, they seem to be incompatible. The, uh, the story that uh, science tells us about the origin of the universe, the structure of the uh, systems like solar system, the structure of the, of the future of the Earth and solar system, and how, uh, why this knowledge, we cannot find it in the Buddha, in the Buddha's uh, uh, teaching. It seems that modern science doesn't speak at all about all this. Uh, extra realms, planes of reality, all these beings like devas and asuras, etc. But, at the same time, Buddha doesn't talk about what modern science talks about. So, how real is what uh, Buddha says?
0: Okay, well, they're talking about different things, looking at things from different perspectives. What, What science is looking at is, when they talk about you, they're talking about what they can measure about you from the outside. What your heart rate is, what your breathing rate is, what your past history is, what your, what your genetic history is, that kind of stuff. They can talk about that. But the, you know, the experience of what is it like for you to be sitting right there right now, they can't describe. Yes. And also, I, mean, there's th- I don't know of any scientific equipment that can measure Davis. <laughs> the presence or absence. I mean, a lot of things they just can't talk about. What the Buddha is talking about is when you go inside and you look at how you experience your body from the inside, how you experience your mind from the inside, and he explores that. And that's and this is one of the reasons why he takes suffering as his big issue, because that's the big issue inside. Now take for example, you know, that old question, how do how do we know that when you see blue and I see blue, our blue is the same? We don't know, right? There's this divide. Now, that is not really that serious an issue. But your issue is, okay, you're suffering. How do we stop that? How do you stop that? And science can't tell you. Because they, don't, they can't even measure your suffering to begin with. They can't detect it. They can detect, detect the brain waves and other things that they interpret as corresponding to your suffering. But the actual suffering itself, they can't get it out and look at it. So the Buddha is talking, talking, they're talking, looking at experience from different perspectives entirely.
4: Uh, uh, so these uh, planes of reality, mm-hmm. are they objective at the same time, like Milky Way is objective, or it's something we well, what, what makes them question
0: mm-hmm. What makes something objective is that two different people with the same instruments can see the same things. Mm-hmm. And so... Our problem here in the West is we don't have many people who've developed the psychic powers out of meditation so they can confirm one another's experiences. Now, When I was trained in Thailand, there was a lot of that. Hmm. Different people separately would detect the same thing going on on one of these other levels of reality.
4: But then my, my question is uh, if by doing uh, meditation and going deep inside and developing this uh, extra sensory knowledge, we can. Uh, know about uh, other planes of reality, but we still cannot explain how uh, this universe come about the way science explains.
0: Do we need to? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I -hmm. mean, if you can solve the cause of suffering, then you're free to uh, solve any other problem you want. Mm -hmm. It's a question of priorities. Mm -hmm. Right?
2: Okay. Thank
0: you. Question Um, over here? Yeah, just... um, again to not to belabor the point but about the, the doctrines of self um, I think there was a monk that asked the Buddha you know, who's suffering, who's death and the Buddha said not a valid question and mm-hmm. they went back through the whole chain of dependent origination mm-hmm. but yet it said that the Buddha felt compassion and taught out of compassion mm-hmm. so for whom does the Buddha feel compassion okay the question you're the Buddha taught, you know, three levels of right view. There's mundane right view. There's transcendent right view, and then there's the ultimate right view, where everything is just arising and passing away is suffering, and you let go of it all. And different questions get answered in different levels. And the question you just asked is a mundane right view question. Now, the Buddha's not saying there is nobody there. It's just that if you're trying to put it into suffering, then you you switch your mode of thinking. Mm-hmm. Once you t- once you solve that problem, then you start thinking about okay, who out there can I help? Then you realize okay, there are people out there to be helped. That's that was you know, the realization he had. So it's, it's the question is not we create our senses of selves and we create this process of going on, and we are suffering. So there's the suffering there. So the Buddha's speaking to that. Thank you.
3: Just a quick question following up on the suffering. Uh, So what's your advice uh, with a skillful approach for people who have uh, chronical pains, either physical or mental pains? Because easily the world around people with pains will be around how to deal with pains. Mm -hmm. Is this real um, uh, painkiller or not? And uh, all these things. Mm -hmm. So what's your advice
0: on that? Okay, we could talk for a whole day on that one. Basically, dealing with physical pain first is one learning the extent to which you are making, you suffer, making yourself suffer around the pain. And it's, it's, mo- it's less the actual physical sensation of the pain that's making you suffer, and it's more the, mind, the way the mind is talking to itself, the perceptions you have, i.e. fabrications, perceptions around the pain. That's what's causing you to suffer. So we focus on that. Now, if a person has got so much pain, they can't even learn how to get the mind into concentration, you say, okay, take some painkiller, to take the edge off the pain, give yourself a space where you can get the mind into concentration. Mm -hmm. And then as your concentration develops, then you can start using it to analyze what does the mind do around the pain, taking that raw material from its past karma and creating present present suffering around it.
3: So take care of the fabrication first and then deal with the raw materials.
0: Well, sometimes, again, sometimes you have to say let's lessen the pain a bit so you can get some time to, you know, get some space to concentrate. But, you know, my, my teacher had a couple of students who had cancer, and in each case, you know, they learned how to deal with the pain of the cancer without having to have the painkiller by looking at the way they were fabricating extra stress around the pain. Because, you know, you have to see there's a difference between sort of the pain of fabrication, the pain of just physical physical events and suffering in the Four Noble Truths, the suffering in the Four Noble truths, the truths comes from clinging. That's the suffering that weighs on the mind. When that suffering is not there, physical pain does not weigh on the mind. You have to learn how to make that distinction. Okay, thank you. Mm-hmm. Back here. Oh, oops. <laughs>
3: So um, along the lines of what the woman was saying back there about, you know, the goose and shaking the leg, Mm -hmm. so many of our responses are conditioned not only, you know, from our early childhood experiences, as you said, and even, you know, from previous generations of, of experience. So what is it that actually helps us to uncondition that and, you know, so that we're not either shaking the leg or, you know, what is it? Is it the meditation? Is it the contemplating of these things? What are, helps to liberate us? from? Okay, it's that? a
0: combination of um, one, giving yourself new activities to hold on to. That's what virtue is. Giving yourself a, a medita- you know, concentration practice so you can have an alternative sense of well-being that doesn't have to depend on shaking your leg. And then finally saying, hey, this shaking my leg. I mean, it's it's going to be nowhere. It's a waste of time. Why, sh- why should I continue it? And it, as long as you have, you need, it's, it's, well, it's like any addiction. I mean, cl- clinging is addiction, basically. And so, one, you have to see that this is stressful. Secondly, that you have an alternative. And part of the alternative means learning new skills so that you get a different idea of yourself, that you are capable of doing the alternative. And give yourself an alternative pl- source of pleasure. So you can see, oh, I don't really need that old form of pleasure. I've got something better.
2: Yeah. This, Thank you.
5: Here. I think uh, part of my question was uh, what she has already uh, asked. But yeah, my what I originally intended to ask was. Once you have identified your clinging, you have recognized it, you have comprehended it through meditation. So, And you have tried the cold turkey approach, and it's not working.
0: You tried the which approach?
5: I mean, stop the addiction, stop the craving, Mm -hmm. and that doesn't work. So basically a progressive uh, process to acquire new activities. It is an hour-to-hour, it's a minute-to-minute basis once you have identified it and you can... Clearly see that's happening, Mm -hmm. and you try to say that okay, I'm, I am the one who was doing it. I'm not going to go ahead and do it, and you do cold turkey. I mean, you stop everything, but that doesn't work because your past keeps on, you know. Well, there's the part of the
0: mind that wants instant gratification. Yeah. And for that, this is one of the reasons why we try to develop our powers of concentration, so that Mm -hmm. just by breathing, you can feel better. You say, look, I've got this alternative activity. I can do this instead of doing the other activity. Mm-hmm. One of the things I was going to get on to later in the day, but I might as well do it now, is the Buddha says there are five steps to overcoming a, a clinging. The first one is seeing it arise. And when it arises? Seeing what's causing it to arise. What comes along with it? The second step is seeing it pass away realizing that some of these urges we have they, they just say I'm going to stay here until you give in to me but then you realize no they come and they go they come and they go so that put you a little bit above them and then you can look at well what's the allure why do I like this and sometimes it's the hardest thing to see because many of the things we like we hide from ourselves or we mis- misunderstand as I said earlier in the morning we, we, we don't understand the location of the craving where exactly is the craving focused but you have to look at what is what, what what am I what do I think I'm getting out of this?
5: But if it's not tangible, if it is just an impulse, if it is at intellectual level. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. That's where you want to see it. Okay, there's something in my mind that yeah. thinks that by giving into this activity I will get this pleasure or I'll gain something from it. That's the allure. And then
5: because sensual, you can clearly see, and you know you can stop it, you can reduce it. But intellectual is you are clinging to a view, an idea, a concept of yourself, mm-hmm. and then it comes back to tell you that oh, you are not. It's like your whole value system may fall in front of your eyes. So, okay. you know, going ahead and identifying, stopping, breathing. And moving ahead from from there.
0: Yeah, you say, I'm holding on to this identity of myself. Is this actually making me suffer or not? And if this identity is making me suffer, why do I hold on? You have to find, where's the allure? What do I find attractive about that identity? Like some people find the identity of a victim as being really, really attractive. They get to blame all their problems on everybody else. But they're miserable. But if you say, no, I'm not the victim, I'm actually an agent in causing myself suffering. They don't like that because, gosh, I'm responsible now. But there has to be a shift in the perspective that says, if I can take responsibility for this, I can get past it. So you want to see the drawbacks and you want to see the allure. And you want to see that, okay, the drawbacks way outweigh the allure. But you have to see precisely where the allure is before you can pull it out.
5: So you find courage and, uh, you know, Involvement in other activities to give you more strength, more, you know, right. that you can do this, right. so you can pacify that part of you that right. you are bigger, bigger than that part, or you right. have the courage to become what you want to right. become right. through the right. new process. Mm, yeah. Thank you,
1: Ajahn. Mm-hmm. Uh, this uh, clinging uh, we talked about. Mm-hmm. Uh, we first of all, uh, you you described it in terms of the five clinging aggregates. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is also the four types uh, of clinging. Types of clinging. Mm-hmm. So uh, are the four types of clinging, are, are they present in all of the five aggregates?
0: You could do that as an intellectual exercise sometime. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, to what extent am I f- clinging to my form through sensuality? To what extent am I clinging to my form through habits and practices? I've got the, I've got the body that can do all these neat calculations for apple and, you know, I see. Perhaps the practices, And then, okay, your views about the world, how do they revolve around your form? How does your se- sense of self revolve around the form? Then you do the same thing for feelings, perceptions, fabrications, consciousness. I see. Now you find that maybe there may be some missing elements in that table. And that gives you an idea, okay, where do I actually identify myself? What am I really clinging to? Okay. One
1: more question. Uh, this... Uh, Five aggregate model uh, also seems to be, because we talked about uh, feeding, Mm -hmm. Uh, it seems to be similar to another thing that the Buddha talked about where consciousness has got food. He Mm -hmm. talks about four different types of food for consciousness
0: form, feeling. Form.
1: But then he talks about uh, contact.
0: There's there's, um, physical food, contact, contact. consciousness itself, and then what was the other one? Uh, I- oh, intellectual intention. Intellectual yeah.
1: intention. Right. So there seems to be some overlap, but slightly different terms. So can you...
0: Well, I think the Buddha created these different ways of analyzing it to see, okay, whatever you find works for your understanding of how your own consciousness works. That's what you apply.
1: But it's ultimately the same thing he's saying. is a consciousness that is feeding on all these things. Right, right. And that's the reason why we are reborn. Right.
4: I want to know you personally when you are going to do something so you, you decide you're going to translate a book mm-hmm. and um, so then are you becoming this this book you're in the, in the realm of becoming so I want to I want I, as an example I want to hear how you become yeah, and how you, yeah, how you go through these experiences mm-hmm. I, it, is, it, Are you an example of right clinging and craving? Well, I
0: hope I'm a right example <laughs> <All>
1: right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> And then, and where, where, how do you do that?
0: Okay, let's see um, I have the desire to translate something from Thai Okay, to One of the adjams And I think about the, con- the consequences of doing this uh, I'll give you a very precise example. I was in Thailand last December and I went to see the Supreme Patriarch. Now, I've known him since for 20 years now. Um, he's a really nice guy. <laughs> and so I went to see him and he gave me a book. He had been a student of Ajahn Fun, who was a student of Ajahn Munn, back when he was a young monk. And so someone for him, had printed for him some of Ajahn Fun's Dharma talks plus English translations. Now, there's a phrase I have in Thailand that you do, it's, something looks like it was done by somebody's foot. <laughs> in other words, they really didn't do a good job at all. I mean, it's just, they, it, it, was, it was some of those God-awful translations you can imagine. Now, I thought to myself, you know, I could very easily do redo those translations. Now, the danger is if you'd redo those translations, maybe the Supreme Paradeur director decides he wants you to do more translations. Do you really want to get involved in that? And if you, don't, if you would like to do the translations but not get involved, is there some way that you can figure out that you can basically say no afterwards? I mean, one of the best things I learned in Thailand was how you say no to power. You have to do it very subtly. I'll give you some examples in a minute. In this particular case, I finally figured out how I could actually beg off any later translations. So then the question is, when do I have the time? When do I have the energy? Is it going to be worth it? So I went through and I read the talks and I'm just like, this would be worth it. It would really be worth the effort to go into it. That's that value judgment. Is this worth the effort? That maybe decide, okay, I'll take that on. Now all of a sudden that means I have to take on my identity as a translator. And, you know, my reputation as a translator. I want to do a good job. That's, that's the becoming that comes around that. And then of course there's the anticipation, the result, will that be a good result? Is it worth the effort that goes into it? And I decide yes, it would be worth the effort. And so I went went ahead and did it. So that's the becoming that comes around that. Now, There's a great story from Berlioz. Do you know Berlioz, the the composer? Yes. Apparently he had a dream one night where he'd composed a symphony in A minor. And and he even had that the key and the the rhythm, it was a two-four first movement. And the themes and everything, it was all came out in the dream. He woke up and he said, you know, I could write this down, but then, good Lord, it would be another five months of my life to make it into the actual symphony. Is it worth it? He said, no, nah, it's not worth it. And so the next night, the dream came back again. Same symphony, over again. And he woke up and he said i really got to say no this time. I just can't do this. You know? <laughs> and so we don't have that symphony by A minor and, and from Berlioz. You know? And it depends on whether you like or don't like Berlioz, whether it was worth it or not. But that's, that's the kind of thing you do. Is it worth the effort? Thank you. Yeah. In terms of saying no to power, I have a couple of good stories. Um, you know, you don't just say no to the king, say, when the king makes a request. You have to figure out some good reason to say no. And there was a case where the king came to Ajahn Mahabhu and said, I'd like to build an ordination hall for your monastery. Because, you know, building an ordination hall, that's a, thats a, you know, it's a, it's a meritorious act. How can you say no to a king who wants to do a meritorious act? Ajahn Mahabhu said, I run a meditation monastery, and if I get monks coming from other places and they don't follow my teachings, I can always send them back to the preceptor where they were ordained. If I ordain people here, I would have no place to send them. And the king backed off. <laughs> and John Sawat went back to Thailand one time. And he was invited to the palace for the king's birthday. And this is after John Sawat had been in, Tha- and in America many years. And the king said, why do you keep going back to America? If Westerners want to come and if Westerners want to study the Dharma with you, they can fly to Thailand. Now. They don't have to, you don't have to be there for them. And John Sawat said, I'm not there for the Westerners. I'm there for the Thai people who don't have anyone to depend on beautiful answer the king just backed off <laughs> now, if we had more people learning how to say no that way the world would be a much better place I had to go in to see the Supreme Patriarch, the old one because my, from my visa required that I had get his signature every year and there was one time I actually got to meet him usually I just kind of passed it in and it came passed out but one time I actually met him so he called me into his dwelling and we started talking and he could see that my time was pretty good and he said, Would you translate some of my books for me? <laughs> and I told him, You know, I still haven't finished with it, John Lee. Okay. No, no. <laughs> So, question back here.
1: So, Ajahn, you talked about uh, the clinging to views, sorry, uh, self views. Mm-hmm. And you specifically talked about this uh, idea that you know there is a self within the body mm-hmm. or a f- uh, self in form, as an example. Um, but it seems like when we are meditating, we are kind of doing that as a training. Uh, we kind of, maybe, or at least partly, uh, we kind of uh, center ourselves in a particular mm-hmm. location in the body mm-hmm. and we... Think of the breath energy coming there and mm-hmm. spreading it out. So it seems like we're kind of maybe training ourselves to do that. Uh, mm-hmm. or how?
0: This how would be a great segue for the next section of the discussion. Okay. <laughs> the selves that you take on as a practitioner. Okay. But we have other questions. Yes.
3: You said there were five steps in overcoming craving. Could you quickly review them again?
0: Okay. Seeing it arise. And not just arising, seeing the origination, i.e. what causes it to arise. And then noticing it when it passes away. The third one is seeing the allure. Why do you like this? The fourth one is seeing the drawbacks. If if I go for this, what, what trouble does it entail? And the fifth one is after you've compared the allure with the drawbacks, you realize, I don't really want this anymore, and that's called dispassion. That's the fifth step. For example, suppose you have anger. Now, part of your anger says, okay, if you don't go away, I'm going to make your, as they say in Thailand, and I'm going to squeeze your nerves until you can't stand it anymore, and then you're going to have to give in. So why don't you give in now? But then you ask yourself, is the anger really as consistent as it claims to be? and then you begin to notice if you watch your mind carefully well the anger comes and then you lose interest after a while mm-hmm. but then the hormones in your body have been churned up you say well you must still be angry so you pick it up again Uh-oh. rather than saying well this is just the, the you know the leftover hormone you know discharge that came with the original burst of anger but this part of you that likes the anger oh here's another here's an excuse to pick it up again so that's the allure what is it you like about the anger? And then but then you see, oh, wait a minute, okay, what I like about the anger is the perception I have of myself as being more powerful when I'm angry, or whatever. I get things done when I'm angry. But then you're looking at okay, the th- way you get things done it's, you know, like the kind of person who you know what what was it? Was it Facebook that said move fast and break things? Which of the, which of the internet companies had that as their It's Facebook. What? Facebook Facebook? Okay. move fast and break things Yeah. do you want to be the kind of person who moves fast and breaks things or do you want something to be a little bit more skillful about how you get things done which gives you the kind of the motivation to say I want to get past this anger until you finally develop full dispassion for it I don't really need this And dispassion is the the feeling that comes I don't need to feed on this anymore I just don't need even to since I'm not going to feed on this food anymore I don't even need to fix it That's dispassion Question?
1: Um, So I want to ask you a little bit more about uh, how do you make the the value judgments of is this worth it or not? Mm -hmm. So my sense is that like Of course, there's an obvious answer of things that are good for yourself and good for others, but I wonder if there's more to that.
0: The question is, sometimes you just have to look at how much energy does this take and how many other things do I have on my plate? Can I add one more thing to my plate and still get all the other things done? What's going to get delayed if I take on this particular task? Do I have the energy? Do I have the time? When it's done, but I feel that it was worth it.
1: Yeah, but about that particular part of like, how do you think is, uh, how do you value whether it's worth it or not, like it, but in terms of what kind of value, you know, like depends on your yeah. priorities. Yeah, and what what is important for you in particular? Why? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I want to train good monks. That's the top priority right now.
1: Okay, thank you.
0: Okay, one more question before we stop for the break. Okay, we can stop for a break. (laughs) Okay, we'll come back at three o'clock.